You're listening to WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, community radio from Goddard College. I listen when I'm naked. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDI. How do you like that? The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Correct, correct, correct. Good luck. We care about your world. Stay tuned. Tony Epstein, it's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Very interesting things happening in the news today. It seems pretty clear now that the Trump administration is trying to turn the U.S. into a fascist police state. But thankfully, there's still some people in this country that don't buy it. They don't want fascism or a police state or these very questionable Trumpite policies. But that's not the subject of today's show. Today we're going to look at the historical and mythological origins of Christianity. Certainly not your typical Sunday school fair, nor what you're liable to learn in school. This is Horus. He is the sun god of Egypt of around 3000 BC. 
He is the sun anthropomorphized, and his life is a series of allegorical myths involving the sun's movement in the sky. From the ancient hieroglyphics in Egypt, we know much about the solar messiah. For instance, Horus, being the sun or the light, had an enemy known as Set, and Set was the personification of the darkness or night. And metaphorically speaking, every morning Horus would win the battle against Set, while in the evening Set would conquer Horus and send him into the underworld. It is important to note that dark versus light, or good versus evil, is one of the most ubiquitous mythological dualities ever known, and is still expressed on many levels to this day. Broadly speaking, the story of Horus is as follows. Horus was born on December 25th of the Virgin Isis, Mary. His birth was accompanied by a star in the east, which, in turn, three kings followed to locate and adorn the newborn savior. At the age of 12, he was a prodigal child teacher. At the age of 30, he was baptized by a figure known as Anup, and thus began his ministry. Horus had 12 disciples he traveled about with, performing miracles such as healing the sick and walking on water. Horus was known by many gestural names such as the Truth, the Light, God's Anointed Son, the Good Shepherd, the Lamb of God, and many others. After being betrayed by Typhon, Horus was crucified, buried for three days, and thus resurrected. These attributes of Horus, whether original or not, seem to permeate many cultures of the world, for many other gods are found to have the same general mythological structure. Attis of Phrygia, born of the Virgin Nana on December 25th, crucified, placed in a tomb, and after three days was resurrected. Krishna of India, born of the Virgin Devaki, with a star in the east signaling his coming. He performed miracles with his disciples, and upon his death was resurrected. Dionysus of Greece, born of a virgin on December 25th, was a traveling teacher who performed miracles such as turning water into wine. He was referred to as the King of Kings, God's only begotten Son, the Alpha and Omega, and many others. And upon his death, he was resurrected. Mithra of Persia, born of a virgin on December 25th, he had 12 disciples and performed miracles, and upon his death was buried for three days and thus resurrected. He was also referred to as the Truth, the Light, and many others. Interestingly, the sacred day of worship of Mithra was Sunday. The fact of the matter is, there are numerous saviors from different periods from all over the world which subscribe to these general characteristics. The question remains, why these attributes? Why the virgin birth on December 25th? Why dead for three days in the inevitable resurrection? Why 12 disciples or followers? To find out, let's examine the most recent of the solar messiahs. Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary on December 25th in Bethlehem. His birth was announced by a star in the east, which three kings or magi followed to locate and adorn the new savior. He was a child teacher at 12. At the age of 30, he was baptized by John the Baptist, and thus began his ministry. Jesus had 12 disciples, which he traveled about with, performing miracles, such as healing the sick, walking on water, raising the dead. He was also known as the King of Kings, the Son of God, the Light of the World, the Alpha and Omega, the Lamb of God, and many, many others. After being betrayed by his disciple Judas and sold for 30 pieces of silver, he was crucified, placed in a tomb, and after three days was resurrected and ascended into heaven. First of all, the birth sequence is completely astrological. 
The star in the east is Sirius, the brightest star in the night sky, which, on December 24th, aligns with the three brightest stars in Orion's belt. These three bright stars in Orion's belt are called today what they were called in ancient times, the Three Kings. And the Three Kings and the brightest star, Sirius, all point to the place of the sunrise on December 25th. This is why the Three Kings follow the star in the east, in order to locate the sunrise the birth of the sun. The Virgin Mary is the constellation Virgo, also known as Virgo the Virgin. Virgo in Latin means virgin. The ancient glyph for Virgo is the altered M. This is why Mary, along with other virgin mothers, such as Adonis's mother Myra, or Buddha's mother Maya, begin with an M. Virgo was also referred to as the house of bread. And the representation of Virgo is a virgin holding a sheaf of wheat. This house of bread and its symbol of wheat represents August and September, the time of harvest. In turn, Bethlehem, in fact, literally translates to house of bread. Bethlehem is thus a reference to the constellation Virgo, a place in the sky, not on earth. There's another very interesting phenomenon that occurs around December 25th, or the winter solstice. From the summer solstice to the winter solstice, the days become shorter and colder. And from the perspective of the northern hemisphere, the sun appears to move south and get smaller and more scarce. The shortening of the days and the expiration of the crops when approaching the winter solstice symbolize the process of death to the ancients. It was the death of the sun. And by December 22nd, the sun's demise was fully realized. For the sun, having moved south continually for six months, makes it to its lowest point in the sky. Here a curious thing occurs. The sun stops moving south, at least perceivably, for three days. And during this three-day pause, the sun resides in the vicinity of the Southern Cross, or Crux, constellation. And after this time, on December 25th, the sun moves one degree, this time north, foreshadowing longer days, warmth, and spring. And thus it was said, the sun died on the cross, was dead for three days, only to be resurrected or born again. This is why Jesus and numerous other sun gods share the crucifixion, three-day death, and resurrection concept. It is the sun's transition period before it shifts its direction back into the northern hemisphere, bringing spring and thus salvation. However, they did not celebrate the resurrection of the sun until the spring equinox, or Easter. This is because at the spring equinox, the sun officially overpowers the evil darkness, as daytime thereafter becomes longer in duration than the night, and the revitalizing conditions of spring emerge. Now, probably the most obvious of all the astrological symbolism around Jesus regards the twelve disciples. They are simply the twelve constellations of the zodiac, which Jesus, being the sun, travels about with. In fact, the number twelve is replete throughout the Bible. This text has more to do with astrology than anything else. Coming back to the cross of the zodiac, the figurative life of the sun, this was not just an artistic expression or tool to track the sun's movement. It was also a pagan spiritual symbol, the shorthand of which 
looked like this. This is not a symbol of Christianity. It is a pagan adaptation of the cross of the zodiac. This is why Jesus in early occult art is always shown with his head on the cross. For Jesus is the Son, the Son of God, the light of the world, the risen Savior who will come again as it does every morning. The glory of God who defends against the works of darkness as he is born again every morning and can be seen coming in the clouds up in heaven with his crown of thorns or sun rays. Now, of the many astrological, astronomical metaphors in the Bible, one of the most important has to do with the ages. Throughout the scriptures there are numerous references to the age. In order to understand this, we need to be familiar with a phenomenon known as the precession of the equinoxes. The ancient Egyptians, along with cultures long before them, recognized that approximately every 2150 years, the sunrise on the morning of the spring equinox would occur at a different sign of the zodiac. This has to do with a slow, angular wobble that the Earth maintains as it rotates on its axis. It is called a precession because the constellations go backwards rather than through the normal yearly cycle. The amount of time it takes for the precession to go through all 12 signs is roughly 25,765 years. This is also called the Great Year. And ancient societies were very aware of this, and they referred to each 2150-year period as an age. From 4300 BC to 2150 BC, it was the age of Taurus, the bull. From 2150 BC to 1 AD, it was the age of Aries, the ram. And from 1 AD to 2150 AD, it is the age of Pisces, the age we are still in to this day. And in and around 2150, we will enter the new age, the age of Aquarius. Now, the Bible reflects, broadly speaking, a symbolic movement through three ages while foreshadowing a fourth. In the Old Testament, when Moses comes down Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments, he is very upset to see his people worshipping a golden bull calf. In fact, he shattered the stone tablets and instructed his people to kill each other in order to purify themselves. Most biblical scholars will attribute this anger to the fact that the Israelites were worshipping a false idol or something to that effect. The reality is, the golden bull is Taurus the bull, and Moses represents the new age of Ares the ram. This is why Jews even today still blow the ram's horn. Moses represents the new age of Ares, and upon the new age, everyone must shed the old age. Other deities mark these transitions as well, such as Mithra, a pre-Christian god who kills the bull in the same symbology. Now Jesus is the figure who ushers in the age following Ares, the age of Pisces, or the two fish. Fish symbolism is very abundant in the New Testament. Jesus feeds 5,000 people with bread and two fish. When he begins his ministry walking along Galilee, he befriends two fishermen who follow him. And I think we have all seen the Jesus fish on the back of people's cars. Little do they know what it actually means. 
It is a pagan astrological symbolism for the sun's kingdom during the age of Pisces. Also, Jesus' assumed birth date is essentially the start of this age. At Luke 22.10, when Jesus is asked by his disciples where the next Passover will be after he is gone, Jesus replies, Behold, when ye are entered into the city, there shall a man meet you, bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house where he entereth in. This scripture is by far one of the most revealing of all the astrological references. The man bearing the pitcher of water is Aquarius, the water bearer who is always pictured as a man pouring out a pitcher of water. He represents the age after Pisces, and when the Son, God's Son, leaves the age of Pisces, Jesus, it will go into the house of Aquarius, as Aquarius follows Pisces in the procession of the equinoxes. All Jesus is saying is that after the age of Pisces will come the age of Aquarius. Now, we have all heard about the end times and the end of the world. The cartoonish depictions in the book of Revelation aside, the main source of this idea comes from Matthew 28.20, where Jesus says, I will be with you even to the end of the world. However, in the King James Version, world is a mistranslation, among many mistranslations. The actual word being used is eon, which means age. I will be with you even to the end of the age, which is true, as Jesus' solar Piscean personification will end when the sun enters the age of Aquarius. The entire concept of end times and the end of the world is a misinterpreted astrological allegory. Let's tell that to the approximately 100 million people in America who believe the end of the world is coming. Furthermore, the character of Jesus being a literary and astrological hybrid is most explicitly a plagiarization of the Egyptian sun god Horus. For example, inscribed about 3,500 years ago on the walls at the Temple of Luxor in Egypt are images of the Annunciation, the Immaculate Conception, the Birth, and the Adoration of Horus. The images begin with Thoth announcing to the virgin Isis that she will conceive Horus, then Neph, the Holy Ghost, impregnating the virgin, and then the virgin birth and the adoration. This is exactly the story of Jesus' miracle conception. In fact, the literary similarities between the Egyptian religion and the Christian religion are staggering. Plagiarism is continuous. The story of Noah and Noah's Ark is taken directly from tradition. The concept of the Great Flood is ubiquitous throughout the ancient world, with over 200 cited claims in different periods and times. However, one need look no further for a pre-Christian source than the Epic of Gilgamesh, written in 2600 BC. This story talks of a great flood commanded by God, an ark with saved animals upon it, and even the release and return of a dove, all held in common with the biblical story, among many other similarities. And then there is the plagiarized story of Moses. Upon Moses' birth, it is said that he was placed in a reed basket and set adrift in a river in order to avoid infanticide. 
He was later rescued by a daughter of royalty and raised by her as a prince. This baby in a basket story was lifted directly from the myth of Sargon of Akkad of around 2250 BC. Sargon was born, placed in a reed basket in order to avoid infanticide and set adrift in a river. He was in turn rescued and raised by Aki, a royal midwife. Furthermore, Moses is known as the lawgiver, the giver of the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic Law. However, the idea of a law being passed from God to a prophet up on a mountain is also a very old motif. Moses is just another lawgiver in a long line of lawgivers in mythological history. In India, Manu was the great lawgiver. In Crete, Minos ascended Mount Dicta, where Zeus gave him the sacred laws. While in Egypt, there was Mises, who carried stone tablets and upon them the laws of God were written. Manu, Minos, Mises, Moses. And as far as the Ten Commandments, they are taken outright from spell 125 in the Egyptian Book of the Dead. What the Book of the Dead phrased, I have not stolen, became thou shalt not steal. I have not killed, became thou shalt not kill. I have not told lies, became thou shalt not bear false witness, and so forth. In fact, the Egyptian religion is likely the primary foundational basis for the Judeo-Christian theology. Baptism, afterlife, final judgment, virgin birth, death and resurrection, crucifixion, the Ark of the Covenant, circumcision, saviors, holy communion, great flood, Easter, Christmas, Passover, and many, many more are all attributes of Egyptian ideas long predating Christianity and Judaism. Justin Martyr, one of the first Christian historians and defenders, wrote, When we say that he, Jesus Christ, our teacher, was produced without sexual union, was crucified and died and rose again and ascended into heaven, we propound nothing different from what you believe regarding those who you esteem sons of Jupiter. In a different writing, Justin Martyr said, he was born of a virgin, accept this in common with what you believe of Perseus. It's obvious that Justin and other early Christians knew how similar Christianity was to the pagan religions. However, Justin had a solution. As far as he was concerned, the devil did it. The devil had the foresight to come before Christ and create his characteristics in the pagan world. Fundamentalist Christianity, fascinating. These people actually believe the world is 12,000 years old. Swear to God. I actually asked one of these guys, okay, dinosaur fossils. He says, dinosaur fossils? God put those here to test our faith. I think God put you here to test my faith, dude. The Bible is nothing more than an astrotheological literary hybrid, just like nearly all religious myths before it. In fact, the aspect of transference of one character's attributes to a new character can be found within the book itself. In the Old Testament, there is the story of Joseph. Joseph was a prototype for Jesus. Joseph was born of a miracle birth. Jesus was born of a miracle birth. Joseph was of 12 brothers. Jesus had 12 disciples. Joseph was sold for 20 pieces of silver. Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver. Brother Judah suggests the sale of Joseph. Disciple Judas suggests the sale of Jesus. 
Joseph began his work at the age of 30. Jesus began his work at the age of 30. The parallels go on and on. Furthermore, is there any non-biblical historical evidence of any person living with the name Jesus, the son of Mary, who traveled about with 12 followers, healing people and the like? There are numerous historians who lived in and around the Mediterranean, either during or soon after the assumed life of Jesus. How many of these historians document this figure? Not one. However, to be fair, that doesn't mean defenders of the historical Jesus haven't claimed the contrary. Four historians are typically referenced to justify Jesus' existence. Pliny the Younger, Suetonius, and Tacitus are the first three. Each one of their entries consists of only a few sentences at best, and only referred to Christus or the Christ, which in fact is not a name but a title. It means the Anointed One. The fourth source is Josephus, and this source has been proven to be a forgery for hundreds of years. Sadly, it is still cited as truth. You would think that a guy who rose from the dead and ascended into heaven for all eyes to see and perform the wealth of miracles acclaimed to him would have made it into the historical record. It didn't because once the evidence is weighed, there are very high odds that the figure known as Jesus did not even exist. The reality is Jesus was the solar deity of the Gnostic Christian sect. And like all other pagan gods, he was a mythical figure. It was the political establishment that sought to historize the Jesus figure for social control. By 325 AD in Rome, Emperor Constantine convened the Council of Nicaea. It was during this meeting that the politically motivated Christian doctrines were established, and thus began a long history of Christian bloodshed and spiritual fraud. And for the next 1,600 years, the Vatican maintained a political stranglehold on all of Europe, leading to such joyous periods as the Dark Ages, along with enlightening events such as the Crusades and the Inquisition. Christianity, along with all other theistic belief systems, is the fraud of the age. It serves to detach the species from the natural world, and likewise each other. It supports blind submission to authority. It reduces human responsibility to the effect that God controls everything, and in turn, awful crimes can be justified in the name of a divine pursuit. And most importantly, it empowers those who know the truth, but use the myth to manipulate and control societies. The religious myth is the most powerful device ever created and serves as the psychological soil upon which other myths can flourish. The most incredible aspect of all, these totalitarian elements will not be forced upon the people. The people will demand them. For the social manipulation of society through the generation of fear and division has completely detached humans from their sense of power and reality a process which has been going on for centuries, if not millennia. Religion, patriotism, race, wealth, class, and every other form of arbitrary separatist identification and thus conceit has served to create a controlled population utterly malleable in the hands of the few. Divide and conquer is the motto. And as long as people continue to see themselves as separate from everything else, they lend themselves to being completely enslaved. The men behind the curtain know this, and they also know 
that if people ever realize the truth of their relationship to nature and the truth of their personal power, the entire manufactured zeitgeist they prey upon will collapse like a house of cards. The whole system that we live in drills into us that we're powerless, that we're weak, that our society is evil, that it's private, etc. and so forth. It's all a big fat lie. We are powerful, beautiful, extraordinary. There is no reason why the average individual cannot be fully empowered. We are incredibly powerful beings. Just a ride. And we kill those people. 
Shut him up. I've got a lot invested in this ride. Shut him up. Look at my furrows of worry. Look at my big bank account and my family. This has to be real. It's just a ride. But we will kill those good guys and try and tell us that. You ever notice that? And let the demons run them up? But it doesn't matter. Because it's just a ride. And we can change it anytime we want. It's only a choice. No effort, no work, no job, no savings of money. Just a choice right now. Between fear and love. Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio.
If you tune in, stream, or podcast WGDR, we are asking you to support our end-of-the-year campaign to keep WGDR on the air. As Vermonters have watched with dismay what's happening nationally, we've been investing time and energy in our community. GDR is stepping up to the plate too. We need your help more than ever. When you make a donation today at WGDR.org, you help us to continue to bring you programs like Democracy Now!, Curse of the Golden Turnip, Wood Warbler's Jazzgrass, Relocalizing Vermont, The Magical Mystery Tour, Lessons from a Radical Model, Acoustic Harmony, Geezer Rock, and many more forward-thinking public affairs and uniquely curated music shows. Go to WGDR.org and make your end of 2017 tax-deductible donation today. Everyone who donates $25 or more to our end-of-year campaign will receive a limited-edition WGDR mug featuring the work of local woodcut artist Mary Azarian. Go to WGDR.org and click Donate Today. solstice to all of you. Coming up next, we're going to hear from Isabel Allende, one of our most gifted storytellers, talking about the power of story and stories of passion. It seems that that's what our lives are about. That seems to be what the world is about, at least from our perspective or maybe from our lack of perspective. Stories. Just continual, unending, unfolding stories. Stories we tell ourselves, stories we are told, stories that we live. Interacting with other people who are living their own stories, telling their own stories. and the merging of stories, or the clashing of stories.
how's your story going? Here's Isabel Allende. I'm here to tell you a few tales of passion. There's a Jewish saying that I love. What is truer than truth? Answer the story. I'm a storyteller. I want to convey something that is truer than truth about our common humanity. All stories interest me and some haunt me until I end up writing them. Certain themes keep coming up, justice, loyalty, violence, death, political and social issues, freedom. I'm aware of the mystery around us, so I write about coincidences, premonitions, emotions, dreams, the power of nature, magic. In the last 20 years, I have published a few books, but I have lived in anonymity until February of 2006, when I carried the Olympic flag in the Winter Olympics in Italy. That made me a celebrity. Now people recognize me in Macy's, and my grandchildren think that I'm cool. <laughs> Allow me to tell you about my four minutes of fame. One of the organizers of the Olympic ceremony, of the opening ceremony, called me and said that I had been selected to be one of the flag bearers. I replied that surely this was a case of mistaken identity because I'm as far as you can get from being an athlete. Actually, I wasn't even sure that I could go around the stadium without a walker. <laughs> I was told that this was no laughing matter. This would be the first time that only women would carry the Olympic flag. Five women representing five continents and three Olympic gold medal winners. My first question was, naturally, what was I going to wear? <laughs> A uniform, she said, and asked for my measurements. My measurements. I had a vision of myself in a fluffy anorak looking like the Michelin man. <laughs> By the middle of February, I found myself in Turin, where enthusiastic crowds cheered when any of the 80 Olympic teams was in the street. Those athletes had sacrificed everything to compete in the games. They all deserved to win, but there's the element of luck. A speck of snow, an inch of ice, the force of the wind can determine the result of a race or a game. However, what matters most, more than training or luck, is the heart. Only a fearless and determined heart will get the gold medal. It is all about passion. The streets of Turin were covered with red posters announcing the slogan of the Olympics, passion lives here. Isn't it always true? Heart is what drives us and determines our fate. That is what I need for my characters in my books, a passionate heart. I need mavericks, dissidents, adventurers, outsiders and rebels who ask questions, bend the rules and take risks. People like all of you in this room. Nice people with common sense do not make interesting characters. They only make good former spouses. <laughs> In the green room 
of the stadium, I met the other flag bearers, three athletes and the actresses, Susan Sarandon and Sophia Loren. Also two women with passionate hearts, Wangari Matai, the Nobel Prize winner from Kenya, who has planted 30 million trees and by doing so she has changed the soil, the weather, and in some, in some places in Africa, and of course, the economic conditions in many villages. And Somali Mam, a Cambodian activist who fights passionately against child prostitution. When she was 14 years old, her grandfather sold her to a brothel. She told us of little girls raped by men who believe that having sex with a very young virgin will cure them from AIDS. And of brothels where children are forced to receive 15 clients per day, and if they rebel, they are tortured with electricity. In the green room, I received my uniform. It was not the kind of outfit that I normally wear, but it was far from the Michelin man suit that I had anticipated. Not bad, really. I looked like a refrigerator. <laughs> but so did most of the flag bearers, except Sophia Loren, the universal symbol of beauty and passion. Sophia is over 70, and she looks great. She's sexy, slim, and tall, with a deep tan. Now, Hanka, how can you have a deep tan and have no wrinkles? I don't know. When asked in a TV interview how could she look so good, she replied, posture. My back is always straight, and I don't make old people's noises. So there you have some free advice from one of the most beautiful women on earth. No grunting, no coughing, no wheezing, no talking to yourselves, no farting. Well, she didn't say that exactly. At some point around midnight, we were summoned to the wings of the stadium and the loudspeakers announced the Olympic flag and the music started. By the way, the same music that starts here, the AIDA march. Sophia Loren was right in front of me. She's a foot taller than I am, not counting the poofy hair. She walked elegantly, like a giraffe on the African savanna, holding the flag on her shoulder. I jogged behind, on my tiptoes, holding my, the flag on my extended arm, so that my head was actually under the damn flag. All the cameras were, of course, on Sophia. That was fortunate for me, because in most press photos, I appear too although often between Sophia's legs. <laughs> a place where most men would love to be. <laughs> the best four minutes of my entire life were those in the Olympic Stadium. My husband is offended when I say this, although I've explained to him that what we do in private usually takes less than four minutes, <laughs> so he shouldn't take it personally. Press clippings of those four magnificent minutes because I don't want to forget them when old age destroys my brain cells. I want to carry in my heart forever the key word of the Olympics, passion. So here's a tale of passion. The year is 1998. The place is a prison camp for Tutsi refugees in Congo. By the way, 80% of all refugees and displaced people in the world are women and girls. We can call this place in Congo a death camp because those who are not killed will die of disease or starvation. 
The protagonists of this, of this story are a young woman, Rose Mapendo, and her children. She's pregnant and a widow. Soldiers have forced her to watch as her husband was tortured and killed. Somehow, she manages to keep her seven children alive, and a few months later, she gives birth to premature twins, two tiny little boys. She cuts the umbilical cord with a stick and ties it with her own hair. She names the twins after the camp's commanders to gain their favor and feeds them with black tea because her milk cannot sustain them. When the soldiers burst in her cell to rape her oldest daughter, she grabs hold of her and refuses to let go, even when they hold a gun to her head. Somehow, the family survives for 16 months, and then, by extraordinary luck and the passionate heart of a young American man, Sasha Sharnoff, she manages, who manages to put her in a US rescue plane Rose Mapendo and her nine children end up in Phoenix, Arizona, where they are now living and thriving. Mapendo in Swahili means great love. The protagonists of my books are strong and passionate women like Rose Mapendo. I don't make them up. There's no need for that. I look around and I see them everywhere. I have worked with women and for women all my life. I know them well. I was born in ancient times, at the end of the world, in a patriarchal, Catholic, and conservative family. No wonder that by age five I was a raging feminist, although the term had not reached Chile yet, so nobody knew what the heck was wrong with me. <laughs> I would soon find out that there was a high price to pay for my freedom and for questioning the patriarchy, but I was happy to pay it because for every blow that I received, I was able to deliver too. Once, when my daughter Paula was in her 20s, she said to me that feminism was dated, that I should move on. We had a memorable fight. Feminism is dated? Yes, for privileged women like my daughter and all of us here today, but not for most of our sisters in the rest of the world, who are still forced into premature marriage, prostitution, forced labor. They have children that they don't want or they cannot feed. They have no control over their bodies or their lives. They have no education and no freedom. They are raped, beaten up, and sometimes killed with impunity. For most Western young women of today, being called a feminist is an insult. Feminism has never been sexy, but let me assure you that it never stopped me from flirting. And I have seldom suffered from lack of men. <laughs> Feminism is not dead, by no means, it has evolved. If you don't like the term, change it for God's sake. Call it Aphrodite or Venus or Bimbo or whatever you want. The name doesn't matter as long as we understand what it is about and we support it. So here's another tale of passion and this is a sad one. The place is a small women's clinic in a village in Bangladesh. The year is 2005. Jenny is a young American dental hygienist who has gone to the clinic as a volunteer during her three-week vacation. She's prepared to clean teeth, but when she gets there, she finds out that there are no doctors, no dentists, and the clinic is just a hut full of flies. Outside, there is a line of women who have waited several hours to be treated. 
The first patient is in excruciating pain because she has several rotten molars. Jenny realizes that the only solution is to pull out the bad teeth. She's not licensed for that. She has never done it. She risks a lot, and she's terrified. She doesn't even have the proper instruments, but fortunately, she has brought some Novocaine. Jenny has a brave and passionate heart. She murmurs a prayer, and she goes ahead with the operation. At the end, the relieved patient kisses her hands. That day, the hygienist pulls out many more teeth. The next morning, when she comes again to the so-called clinic, her first patient is waiting for her with her husband. The woman's face looks like a watermelon. It is so swollen that you can't even see the eyes. The husband, furious, threatens to kill the American. Jenny is horrified at what she has done. But then the translator explains that the patient's condition has nothing to do with the operation. The day before, her husband beat her up because she was not home in time to prepare dinner for him. Millions of women live like this today. They are the poorest of the poor. Although women do two-thirds of the world's labor, they own less than 1% of the world's assets. They are paid less than men for the same work, if they are paid at all. And they remain vulnerable because they have no economic independence and they are constantly threatened by exploitation, violence and abuse. It is a fact that giving women education, work, the ability to control their own income, inherit and own property benefits the society. If a woman is empowered, her children and her family will be better off. If families prosper, the village prospers, and eventually so does the whole country. Wangari Matai goes to a village in Kenya. She talks to the women and explains that the land is barren because they have cut and sold the trees. She gets the women to plant new trees and water them drop by drop. In a matter of five or six years, they have a forest, the soil is enriched, and the village is saved. The poorest and most backward societies are always those that put women down. Yet, this obvious truth is ignored by governments and also by philanthropy. For every dollar given to a woman's program, $20 are given to men's programs. Women are 51% of humankind. Empowering them will change everything, more than technology and design and entertainment. I can promise you that. Women working together, linked, informed, and educated can bring peace and prosperity to this forsaken planet. In any war today, most of the casualties are civilians, mainly women and children. They are collateral damage. Men run the world, and look at the mess we have. What kind of world do we want? This is a fundamental question that most of us are asking. Does it make sense to participate in the existing world order? We want a world where life is preserved and the quality of life is enriched for everybody, not only for the privileged. In January, I saw an exhibit of Fernando Botero's paintings at the UC Berkeley Library. No museum or gallery in the United States, except for the New York gallery that carries Botero's work, has dared to show the paintings because the theme is the Abu Ghraib prison. There are huge paintings of torture and abuse of power in the voluminous Botero style. 
I have not been able to get those images out of my mind or my heart. What I fear most is power with impunity. I fear abuse of power and the power to abuse. In our species, the alpha males define reality and force the rest of the pack to accept that reality and follow the rules. The rules change all the time, but they always benefit them. And in this case, the trickle-down effect, which does not work in economics, works perfectly. Abuse trickles down from the top of the ladder to the bottom. Women and children, especially the poor, are at the bottom. Even the most destitute of men have someone they can abuse, a woman or a child. I'm fed up with the power that a few exert over the many through gender, income, race, and class. I think that the time is ripe to make fundamental changes in our civilization. But for real change, we need feminine energy in the management of the world. We need a critical number of women in positions of power, and we need to nurture the feminine energy in men. I'm talking about men with young minds, of course. Old guys are hopeless. We have to wait for them to die off. <laughs> yes, I would love to have Sophia Loren's long legs and legendary breasts. But given a choice, I would rather have the warrior hearts of Wangari Matai, Somali Mam, Jenny, and Rose Mapendo. I want to make this world good. Not better, but to make it good. Why not? It is possible. Look around in this room, all this knowledge, energy, talent, and technology. Let's get off our fannies, roll up our sleeves, and get to work passionately in creating an almost perfect world. Thank you. And that was the incomparable Isabel Allende, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. The labels that I claimed as me were no more than a skin. I wrapped around my consciousness as if it had an end. The calendar that gave the date was no more than a sign. I walked beyond to find myself in present state of mind. The 13 moons divide themselves cycles of 28. The farmers write their almanacs. The moon is never late. But how we count the days in ours place walls confine the mind. We live in doubt and debt where there is never enough time. The minute or the moment. How you think is your opponent. If you're listening right now, close your eyes and count to one. Wow.
about Brooklyn at Christmas time, but somehow it's like uh, certain magic in the air, you know? I don't know whether it's a light layer of snow covering the bums, the little children gaily frolicking up and down Flappish Avenue picking pockets, or perhaps it's because the dog crap freezes, but whatever it is, <laughs> it just says Christmas. And every year we go over to my grandmother's house, we sit around a space heater, and I tell them all the story of Christmas as it actually happened to me, rhymes and everything. And it goes something like this. Actually, it goes exactly like this. I don't know why I say it goes something like this. This is how it's supposed to go. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Shut up. <laughs> it was the night before Christmas in Sheepshead Bay. The kids was asleep, waiting for the big day. The stockings was hung by the furnace with care. In hopes that by morning, they would all still be there. <laughs> Me and the skank was getting ready for bed. I wore pajamas. She had a paper bag for her head. <laughs> Went up on the roof. I heard this big crash. Thought it was a burglar. I was going to kick ass. Went out in the fire escape, looked up in the sky. And what did I see? This freaking fat guy. With a red suit on boots that came up to his knees. In the moonlight, he looked just like Dom DeLuise. <laughs> he had this big sled pulled by these reindeer. He called one of them dancers, so I assumed he was, you know. <laughs> but as he crept off the roof, it became clear to me, this guy was looking to steal my TV. Because over his shoulder, he had a big sack. He came down the stairs while I planned my attack. I waited a second till the timer seemed ripe and smacked him in the head bada bing with a pipe. <laughs> we fell to the floor with a groan and a thud. I was kind of surprised I didn't see blood. Instead, he rolled over, looked me right in the eye. When I saw who I hit, I near started to cry. I said, hey, yo, Santa, I'm sorry, all right? Not for nothing, he said, but this just ain't my night. <laughs> I got lost in the Bronx. I ran over some nuns. Had a near miss by Kennedy. Rudolph's got the runs. <laughs> I'm out all freaking night. I am busting my hump, but I can't continue now, not with this bump. So do me a favor. Be a real pal. Take over for me. You'll be Santa Claus, Sal. <laughs> I said I'm from Brooklyn. I ain't right for the pa. But he told me, 
Santa Claus comes from your heart. <laughs> you made me off, I couldn't refuse. Stop out every house, except for the Jews. It's <laughs> <laughs> regulation. You gotta pass over them. <laughs> I got in a suit and stepped onto the sleigh, wondering why reindeers all smelled that way. <laughs> Took off on my mission, didn't want to be late. Well, old St. Nick spent that I closing my date. <laughs> that night, I was Santa, bringing kids joy and bliss. And if you don't believe me, then yo, jingle this. <laughs> Since then, I've been with him every year in the cold, riding shotgun with Santa. Because he's fat and he's old. I'm his number one helper. I've been deputized. So on this Christmas Eve, don't just be surprised. If you hear a voice, say really loud and abrupt, Merry Christmas to all. Thanks a lot. Shut up.
One day a man showed up at my grandmother's back door. He had a wild beard. And around his neck he had a tree branch in the rough shape of a cross. And like many people did, knowing my grandmother's generosity, he said he was hungry and would appreciate some food. So she invited him into her kitchen. And while he was sitting there eating, she asked him his name. And he said, my name is Jesus. Now my grandmother then asked him, and uh, what is your last name? And he said, I am Jesus the Lord. When my uncle came in the room, my grandmother introduced him as Mr. the Lord. My grandmother's English wasn't too good. She then asked this man, where do you live? And he said, I don't have a house. And she said, where are you going to stay tonight? It's very cold outside. He said, I don't know. She said, would you like to stay here? He stayed seven years. After my uncle told me that story, I asked my mother that night, Mother, uh, how come you never told me the story about Jesus? Oh, she said, I thought I had. There was a story like that almost every day about your grandmother. I was very touched about this story of my grandmother's generosity to people. And that night, a song came to me about my grandmother and Jesus. There's one line in it that needs explaining. My grandmother was a very large woman, but she was a very skilled dancer. And she loved to dance. And she used to say often, never walk when you can dance. It was in her Jewish way she taught me what Jesus had to say Yes, in her precious way She taught me what Jesus had to say One day a man named Jesus Came around to Grandma's door He asked for a little food She gave him more he said he was Jesus the Lord She didn't check him out with Rome He stayed for several years As many did without a home It was in her Jewish way She taught me what Jesus had to say Yes, in her precious way Taught me what Jesus had to say And that's feed the hungry Heal the sick Then take a rest Never walk when you can dance Make your home a cozy nest Yes, feed the hungry Heal the sick Then take a rest Never walk when you can dance Make your home a cozy nest It was in her Jewish way She taught me what Jesus had to say Yes, in her precious way She taught me what Jesus had to say
snored in the chimney. I thought it was probably just a stupid cat sneaking around doing his dumb stuff the way he always was, so I just rolled over and went back to sleep. I was all cozy in my little mouth hole. But then there the noise was again. And this time it sounded like a regular person, too. So I thought it must be the people in the house. They, I tell you, they had been acting crazy lately. They had brought a tree into the house. A whole tree. And they had put it over in the corner. And then they hung lights on it and all this sparkly stuff and colored balls. I couldn't believe it. And then they started making more cookies and candy, which, well, did you see that? That was all right with me, because it gave me a lot to eat, you see. And then they started telling stories, and they would sing, and they was having a good time. And then just tonight, they was giving each other these little packages wrapped in bright paper. And then they hung some socks on the mantel. But I just about took the cake for me. That was too much. Oop! But then, but then there, there, there was that noise in the chimney again. So I got out of my bed and I peeked out of the hole in the wall where I lived. And I couldn't believe it. I had to shake my head a couple times because there, standing in the fireplace, was someone with black boots on and red pants and the rest of him was up the chimney. And I thought, that's it. That is it. A burglar has come to get us. I looked around to see where that stupid cat was, and he was behind the sofa asleep. Sound asleep, he didn't hear nothing. Well, then, this guy came out. And sure enough, it must have been a burglar, because he had a white beard, and he was carrying a sack over his shoulder that was full of stuff. And I thought, well, he's already been around the neighborhood, stealing all kinds of things. But then he did the weirdest thing I have ever seen. He laid down the sack and began taking things out of it and sticking them into the socks. And all the time he was doing it, he was humming and smiling. <laughs> and then, then I remembered that all the people in my house had been smiling a whole bunch more since they had been giving each other presents and helping each other. And it was nicer, too. And I thought, well, maybe, maybe when you give something to someone, it makes them smile and be nice. So I thought, well, that, 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 that's what I'll do to this stupid cat to make him keep from chasing me. Well, just then the man in the red suit finished doing what he was doing. He ate some cookies and drank some milk that was on the table. Then he picked up his sack and went back up to Jimmy. I ran back to the little den in my mouth hole and got this most favorite thing of mine, the best thing I have. And I went over to the opening and looked out and that stupid cat was still asleep behind the sofa. So I tiptoed out of the hole, across the rug, and then dived under the sofa. I could see the cat on the other side still asleep or pretending to be anyway. I crawled under the sofa carrying this thing, you see, all the way up to the cat, and I leaned out and put the thing in front of him. He moved for a second, and I thought, oh, no, I'm dead. But then he went back to sleep. So I turned around and snuck back under the sofa, and then I got to the other side. I ran slick. 
lickety-split across the rug and dived into the hole and thought, well, maybe. Maybe now that would make the cat smile and be nice. Then I went over and peeked out of the hole again. The cat was still sleeping. But there in front of him, right where I had left it, was my most favorite piece of cheese. Follow me, alcohol that my pop swallow bottle me. No apology, I walk with a bold on my shoulder. It's a cold war, I'm a colder soldier. Hold the same fight that made Martin Luther the king. I ain't using it for the right thing. In between lean and the fiends, hustle and the schemes. I put together pieces of a dream. I still have one. I got a dream. One day. We gonna work it out. One day. We gonna work it out. One day. We gonna work it out. I have a dream. I got a dream. We gonna work it out one day. We gonna work it out one day. We gonna work it out. I have a dream. I got a dream. That one day. That one day. That one day. I'm a little deeper than myself. I gotta find a way. I have a dream. My dream is to be free. My dream is to be. My dream is to be. My dream is to be free. Looking in the mirror, images of me getting much clearer. Dear self, I wrote a letter just to better my soul. If I don't express it, then forever I hold inside. I'm from a side where we out of control. Rap music in the hood played a fatherly role. My story, like yours, yo, gotta be told. Trying to make it from a gangster to a golly role. Red scrolls of stone slaves and Jewish people in cold cage. Hate has no color or age. Flip the page. Now my race became freedom. Right dreams in the dark, they far, but I can see them. I believe in heaven more than hell. Blessings more than jail. In the ghetto, let love prevail. With a story to tell, my eyes see the glory and well. The world waiting for me to yell. I have a dream. I got a dream. One day. We gonna work it out. One day. We gonna work it out.
free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. about it for this magical mystery tour thank you all so much for listening and however you celebrate these holidays have a wonderful time and until next time be well